Presbyterian Church in San Antonio, uh, and someone that I've known and loved for, for many, many years is going to open God's word for us. This is, uh, this is a tough portion of teaching by Jesus, which is why I brought in someone else. So give your attention to God's word this morning. Well, uh... On. There we go. There we go. Woo. It's loud. Um, thank you for having me. As, um, as I, I have known many of you here at Hope for a long time, and uh, I have told you that we at Redeemer, and just me personally, we've been praying for y'all. It's really a delight to be a partner with you guys from a little bit of a distance. This is an important work that you are doing. You're creating a church. You're creating a new expression of God's delightful love and presence in this city. And it's a, a church for this city. And um, that's a big work. And so um, we pray for you. We're excited for you. And, uh, and Derek has asked me to be here um, to take on a challenging passage. A passage that really needs a suit on to really take seriously. So, um, so I decided to, to dress the part. Uh, no, we're looking at um, the Sermon on the Mount. What you've been looking at. Jesus teaching His disciples. And He's teaching things that they have been taught for many years. The law of God. The rabbis have been teaching them God's law. And yet Jesus is deepening and He's expanding what they are used to hearing. So, let's look at God's Word and see what He's got for us today. We're going to look at just three verses from Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says this, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better for you that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit, that we might hear Jesus in this passage. That we would not just hear His words, but His Spirit, His heart. His care and concern for us, the truth that He confronts us with. And I pray that You would meet us now, that our lives might be different, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, So I grew up going to one of those classic 80s youth groups. Uh, We had one of the cool youth rooms at the very back and the upstairs of our church building, and we had decorated our, you know, our 80s youth group room. We had posters of all the good 80s Christian rock bands, Petra. Uh, uh, What is it? Um, Thank you. I think later on as I was leaving, DC Talk became a thing, and we, we had all of that. We had painted, all of the youth group came up and we painted it. We painted it with a black background, and it had the skyline of Dallas. This was in Dallas. Painted the skyline of Dallas across the whole wall in fluorescent paint, so that when you turned the lights low for the worship service, we'd turn on black lights, so the whole room would just glow every time we had a worship service. 
it was pretty cool. I mean, for the 80s, this was, this was pretty great. And we also had this young, energetic youth pastor. And I'm sure, like all young, energetic youth pastors, he liked to teach about lust all the time. And it really felt to me like every time that he would begin teaching about this, my stomach would fall. I would get this sense of fear and shame because I felt like I must have been the only person sitting in the room who felt like my teenage sexuality was so um, uh, frightening and confusing to me. I couldn't imagine anybody feeling the way that I felt as an adolescent. It was, it was hard. For years later, every time I walked into church and I saw that somebody was preaching on a passage like this, I would get a sense of panic. You know, it's like PTSD throwing me back into my high school youth group. And I wonder if some of you actually felt that way when you came in and you opened the bulletin and you thought, maybe I can get out of here really quickly. <laughs> But you're stuck now. Or maybe I can just kind of tune out. This is bringing back all sorts of bad memories for me. See, here's the thing though, if you feel that way. Jesus taught about sexuality and people never got a sense of dread and fear from him. When Jesus taught about sexuality, people were drawn to him. People came from all around to hear Jesus talk about Important things including sexuality. And in fact, people when they heard Jesus talk, they experienced it as life-giving. Attractive. Something they wanted more of. What is it that was unique about Jesus' teaching? You know, if you are a non-Christian, I have a feeling that you have feel like you have heard endless Christians talk about sexuality and it has become very tiresome for you. Very hypocritical probably. But what I want to say, and I think for all of us, is that I think Jesus has something different and beautiful if we can see it, if we can hear it. So what is it that Jesus is trying to teach us here? Well, I think at the very least, he's giving us two concrete reasons why lust is a sinful expression of a good sexuality. As I said earlier, Jesus begins with what his audience is already familiar with, God's law. They've been hearing teaching on God's law since they were in their own Jewish youth groups. And so he starts with the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. And what most of them would know is that what that means is that you are not to have sexual relations with anyone who is not your spouse. That was pretty clear. But Jesus here wants to deepen and expand what that is. So what exactly does Jesus mean here? The language that he uses implies intent. It's well translated in your ESV. Let me read that again. But you've, you've heard it that, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. What he says is, do not look after a woman in order to, with the intention of lusting after her. Noticing someone, watching someone, even staring at someone is not prohibited, although that's probably in very bad taste. What is prohibited here is 
is the intention of lust. Using someone, lust is using somebody's, some person's physical form to feed our own sexual desires. We see people. We notice beauty. But, but seeing with lustful intent is something that we allow to happen in our hearts. We see people and we have sexual desires. That is natural. But to feed and foster those sexual desires is what Jesus is talking about here. Last week, no doubt, you talked about anger, which was the preceding passage in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. In Jesus' teaching there that circumstances are going to come at you which will make you angry. That's not a problem. That's part of being a human. But it's the fostering and the cultivating of anger that Jesus is talking about. And it's the same idea. When we choose to lust, we sin in two very concrete ways. We We hurt other people, and we hurt ourselves. These are the two reasons that it's a sinful expression of a good sexuality. How do we hurt other people in lust? Well, first of all, we take their God-given dignity and their beauty, and we use it for ourselves. As Christians, we believe that God created each person uniquely to bear God's image. And this is why as Christians we pursue justice, we protect the weak and the vulnerable. And Jesus is saying that when you lust after another person, you are intending to use their physical form for your own desires, whether they have given you permission to or not. You're using them as an object for your personal gain, and it's unjust. You're treating them like the kindling to feed your own personal fire. Then maybe you ask, okay, well, why is it a big deal for us to do something that someone will never even know that we've done? You know, how does that really hurt a person to to do something that they don't even know about? Well, this is a simple thing, isn't it? Imagine you've got a wealthy old uncle who lives in this big and beautiful house and you go to visit this uncle occasionally and over the years as you've been visiting, you notice that on this side table as you walk in the door, there's this stack of $100 bills. It's been there for years. It's a big stack. And you realize this wealthy old uncle, number one, he's never going to miss that $100. He's never going to even really know that you took $100 if you wanted to. And yet, to steal that money injures him. It injures his humanity. It injures him being made in God's image. And it ruptures the relationship that you have with him. It's the same idea. Whether or not somebody knows what you are thinking about them, it is still an attack on their humanity. It doesn't treat them how they ought to be treated for who they are. And this applies both to men and to women. It's as though you're treating that other person as something that you own and possess and can use in any way that you want. You see, and lust even goes further. Lust it happens when we begin to fantasize about people. We put them into situations that seem desirous to us and we play out these imaginations. Lust happens when we look at pornography. Do you you realize that every time you click on a pornographic website, you are a participant in this worldwide epidemic, not just of pornography, 
but of, but of human trafficking, of child exploitation, of sexual crime, that you are complicit in this every time you click on something. It's unjust. You see, what Jesus is getting at here is that lust has a social dimension. It's not just something that is personal and private, strictly. And I think that's actually what's really helpful about what Jesus is saying here. Uh, And what he's teaching is that it forces us to deal with real people. We can't just keep this as some sort of a a, a, um, uh, something that just is in our own private world. We have to deal with the reality of people. So think about it this way. Think about lust in the context of marriage. You know, a lot of young Christian people out there think about marriage and they think, you know, while I'm young, I need to restrain my sexual impulses. And then when I get married, it's like... You know, no more restraint. You know, then I'm free for whatever. But that's not the case. That's not at all how Jesus talks about our sexuality. You see, it is possible for you to fantasize about your spouse. And that is something that Jesus is talking about here. Taking your spouse's, the fullness of who your spouse is as a human being, and using that for your own internal and private pleasure. You can't do that. That injures your spouse. It robs them of their humanity. And we can't do that. that and see, this is the first reason that, uh, that Jesus talks about this as a sinful way of dealing with our good sexuality, is that it hurts other people, is what lust does. So the second thing, not only does it hurt other people, it hurts you as well. And that's actually one of, the, one of the things that I find most fascinating about how Jesus talks about lust here. Is that he doesn't condemn sexual desires in themselves. He simply condemns sinfully using other people to satisfy our sexual desires. Using our good sexuality sinfully. And frankly, this is where my, uh, you know, my youth group really missed the boat growing up. See, God created you with sexual desires. He created you to see and to notice and to appreciate and to desire beautiful things. And all of that is good. You know, the sexuality that God has given you is a gift that you are to steward throughout your whole life. Your entire life. Children express this as they begin to learn about how their bodies work and how to handle modesty and how to touch other people appropriately. Adolescents learn how to steward their sexuality when they, as they begin to understand how their bodies are changing and how they can begin to interact with people of the opposite sex in a healthy way. Single people express this sexuality as they develop deep and intimate relationships with people of the opposite sex and begin to, to deal in a, uh, in a way that is... Um, uh, they begin to show affection to other people. And then, and then in marriage, we begin to get the proper place for us to express the fullness of that sexuality that God has created us with. We could say that, that the fire of our sexuality is meant to be lived out in marriage, expressed in the fireplace of marriage, we could say. And so this is why Jesus here calls lust adultery. 
Because he says that every instance of lust is a crime against the proper context for our sexuality in marriage. Why? Why is that? Well, because, think about it, lust by its nature is self-focused. It's fo- and that's, that self-focus is what makes it so destructive. You know, sexuality in marriage is designed to push us towards another p- person. It's designed to draw us in intimacy. We are conjoined with another human being. We are made one flesh with them. Our lives are drawn together. Our bodies are drawn together. Our hearts are drawn together. But lust says that... Sex is a one-person show. Sex is all about my, my fulfillment, what I want and what I need. And so it isolates us from another person. It's self-defeating. See, this is the thing. Lust proves that a sinful expression of our sexuality can never give us the satisfaction it was meant, that sexuality was meant to give us. We could actually take this one step further. You know, we, Jesus is using men as the example here, and so, you know, frankly, men get the bad, uh, men get most of the application. We kind of tend to think this passage is just directed towards adolescent males, but that's not the case at all. Jesus is talking to all kinds of people. This is equally applicable to men and to women. One way that we could apply this is to say that women sometimes don't do don't um, don't fall into this sin from a uh, from a viewing perspective, although that is the that is often the case. But sometimes it's self-reflective, the desire to be to seduce, the desire to use their own physical bodies as a way to garner attention is one application of this. It's the inordinate focus on their own physical form as a way to express their sexuality. It actually cheapens their own identity. So what do we do with that? There's a great writer, her name's Rebecca DeYoung. She writes about the seven deadly sins, and this is one of the ones she talks about. It's a wonderful book if you're interested. But she says this, Lust usually begins as a sin of weakness, not a sin of our malice. She says people generally just simply get carried away by the strength of their desires. Of course, nobody plans to hurt other people and to create their own deep wounds in their own life. But over time, they slowly develop habits. They hide their sin from others. They, their hearts begin to harden and finally they feel trapped in their own sin. And I, I suspect some of you, when we talk about this, feel that way. Trapped. You know, I don't know about you, but I've spent about 30 years with the Lord teaching me these lessons since my adolescence. Since sitting in that sweet 80's youth group room. But do you see the beautiful part of this, of this message that Jesus is giving? Jesus isn't condemning you for your sexual desires. He's not saying the fact that you have sexual desires makes you somehow broken or disgusting or unfaithful. 
He's saying you're taking something that is good and beautiful about yourself and you're using it in a twisted way. You see, the message that I received as a kid was that everything about this makes you wrong and therefore you have to hide it away. That if you ever look at it or talk about it, it's somehow bad. And what Jesus is saying is, no, you are called to be fully human. You're just supposed to deal with your heart. The matters of the heart, I think you've been saying. Isn't that relieving? Isn't it relieving to know that if you struggle with this particular sin, you're not some sort of a weirdo? (laughs) You're a person whose natural desires have begun to be twisted. And you're actually called to steward your desires for good. But how do you do that? How can you steward these desires in a healthy way? Well, I think that's what Jesus um, spends the last two the, the last two sentences talking about here. And really, he gives us some of the most striking language that he uses in any of his teaching. Cut, you know, gouge out your eye, cut off your hand. Jesus, look for for whatever you may think about Jesus. Jesus does not offer band aids. When Jesus wants you to deal with something, He wants you to go to the root of it. To cut it out of your life. To get to the heart issue. He's talking about a ruthless self-denial. Jesus is not talking about literal uh, mutilation of your own body. He's talking about self-denial. John Stott paraphrases this this way. He says this. I'll just read it. If your eye causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your eyes, through the objects that you're looking at, well then pluck out your eyes. That is, don't look at it. Behave as if you had actually plucked your eyes out and flung them away and were blind so that you wouldn't see the objects that previously caused you to sin. Again, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin because temptation comes to you through your hands, the things that you do and your feet, the places you you go, then don't go. Don't do it. Behave as if you actually cut off your hands and your feet and flung them away and were now crippled so that you could not do the things or visit the places that had previously caused you to sin. Paul, the Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 picks up this language. He says, put to death these things. You know, put your mind on things above, not things below. Another way to say that is this, that if you have not taken specific concrete steps to to do something about this particular sin in your life, then you have not heeded what Jesus' teaching here is. Specific, concrete things, like if you've not put a a filter or an accountability software on your computer or your phone, you have not dealt with what Jesus is talking about. If If you've not put parental restrictions on your children's devices, you've not dealt with this. If you've not examined the way that you look at other people, you've not dealt with this. If you haven't evaluated the things that you watch on a regular occasion, if you've not evaluated your own internal fantasy life, the things you think about as you're falling asleep. See, what Jesus is saying is, keep your, the fire of your sexual desires in the fireplace. <laughs> in the proper context. Because, as anybody will tell you, If you decide to build a fire in the middle of your living room, what's going to happen? You're going to burn your house down. (laughs) 
And some of us live with this perpetual sense that our house is on fire from our sexual desires. Yeah, and I think for many people, and especially me in my youth, I hear this command, I heard this command as maybe the most difficult thing that Jesus wrote or said. It seemed completely impossible and, and hopeless. And, and actually, I think that's where the real deep beauty of this passage is. Frederick Bruner, who is a, a great commentator, he says that um, the commands of Jesus like this are so beautiful because they force us to see the depths of the power of sin in our own hearts. You know, for those people who struggle with this particular sin or other sins like it, you know the power of sin, the power that sin holds in your own life. It can feel overwhelming. And our faltering attempts to, to battle back against it and confront this sin seem so pathetic in light of it. It's like we've gone to the, to the ocean side and we're standing right in the waves and we're trying to push back these huge waves that keep crashing over us again and again and again knocking us down filling our mouths with salt water that's what it feels like oftentimes to try and to battle against lust and if you see yourself in that place of weakness there is so much hope for you right here and the hope is that Jesus is the one who's speaking it because Do you know how Jesus consistently talks about Himself? The Scriptures consistently call Jesus, compares Jesus to a husband who is looking for and seeking after His people, His his bride. We are called His bride. Jesus is, is the picture of Him desiring intimacy with us, pursuing us, like a husband pursuing his wife, like a coming to become a man to rescue us from the power of our sin, from the power of our failures, and ultimately dying as a sacrifice for us. See, why is that good news? Well, I can say it this way. In a sense, the power of your sexual desires mirrors... The fire and passion of love that God has for His people. You see, He created us with that powerful sexual desire because that is the same kind of desire that is perfected and purified in God our Father seeking to make us His own people. You think your sin is powerful? Jesus' pursuit of you is far more powerful. You think your internal drives are powerful? His desire to be reconciled to His people is far more powerful than that. There is beauty here for you. You see, that's the message that I needed to hear in my cool 80's youth group room. I knew that the fire of my sexual desires were out of control. I knew that. 
And I knew that there were good ideas about how I should probably stop trying to do that. That there were opportunities for me to, to go and to talk to my pastor and to other people. And I would encourage you to do the same thing, to take concrete steps. But at the very core, I needed to know that there was a God whose grace was more powerful than my sin. Whose love was more passionate than my love for myself. Whose hope for me was bigger than my hope for myself. I needed to see His grace. And I think that's the place where we ought to stop. And we ought to turn, because for many of you, you feel like, whether it's this sin of lust or some other powerful drive in your own life, you feel like that drive is more powerful than the grace of Christ. And you need to repent of that. You need to repent of that. You need to see that as destructive... As that sin is in you, Jesus' grace is pursuing you more powerfully. And you need to turn to Him. So after I pray, I want you to think about those things that we think are more powerful. And to turn again to Christ. So let me pray. Our God, this is one of those passages that you teach us that seem impossible and difficult and frustrating and anxiety creating. And yet, Lord, what we see if we're willing to look at the depth of how our sin hurts other people and the the way it hurts us and our faltering attempts at following you, what we will see is that in the void of our unrighteousness you have filled it with your love and you call us to come to you help us to do that we pray this day in christ's name amen